Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you're familiar with this podcast, you'll know that each week we work our way through a selection of sermons in sequence from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the eminent Victorian pastor and preacher. This week it's sermons 689 to 695. Also, on a weekly basis, we identify a particular featured sermon, a representative sermon, but also one that we hope will be of particular benefit to God's people, both in terms of our own pilgrimage individually and collectively, but also for those who may be pastors or preachers or those who are praying for and listening to them as a means of enhancing our understanding of the person and work of Christ and what it means to make him known. If you uh, don't know where else to find us, you can look on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, where you can find the the weekly readings and usually daily quotes, but also at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can find this particular podcast among some of the other excellent ones which they do. And you can sign up to a weekly newsletter where you will be able to get the uh, the PDF of the featured sermon and the uh, the general information about that week's readings. That brings us to this week's featured sermon. The text is Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. The uh, phrase upon which uh, Spurgeon settles is a simple and short one, joy and peace in believing. The sermon itself is entitled simply that, and was preached in 1866 on Sunday morning, the 20th of May, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London. The sermon as a whole is addressed to a particular class of people, a certain category of believers. A large number of people who profess to have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who assert that they have no peace, no joy and peace, in consequence thereof. So says Spurgeon, that's who I'm speaking to this morning. The people who say that they have faith in the Lord Jesus, but no joy and peace as a result of believing. Now he says most of these people aren't going to openly profess themselves Christian by being baptized and entering into membership. And when you push them on the matter of their personal salvation, they will sometimes say something like this. Well, I do believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm so unhappy and so un- so miserable still that I cannot believe that I am saved. He says they're effectively saying that the word of God declares that whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but they're asserting that they've believed in Jesus and still are haunted with fears of condemnation, which lead them to believe that they cannot have been delivered from the wrath to come. So says Spurgeon. I'm supposing that those people are sincerely anxious to be saved and they're not raising this difficulty just to be difficult. I'm not, he says, trying to talk to people who are just uh, trying to be awkward. I'm speaking to the tender-hearted or those who want tender hearts, to those who have their faces toward Jerusalem but travel as if in the dark. And if they really want to obtain joy and peace through believing, his aim is that God would grant it to them as they hear the word preached. And what's interesting here is that he also says, I'm also assuming that they're in reasonable physical and mental condition. 
He says there are some people who are beyond the reach of the divine and must be dealt with if treated at all successfully by the ordinary physician first. So he says you could be sick enough that actually it's going to have an impact on your spiritual well-being, your your perception or your capacity to perceive the truth accurately. And so he says there are some for whom the case goes beyond the limits of mere argument. The mind gets into a disordered condition and the body too, and therefore both body and mind must be set right by some other means before it is likely that spiritual reasons will tell upon them. So, he says, I'm assuming that you are sane and healthy and sincere. Now, he's not then saying there's no hope for the others. What he's saying is that he recognises the interplay of the the spiritual with the, the physical, the, the bodily and the mental, and that he, he would want to take account of that in the way that he gives counsels. I don't think we ever make that an excuse for sin, but it might help to explain some of the challenges that some face. And it's good then for a wise pastor or preacher to be aware of that and for God's people to be sensitive to the dynamics uh, between our, our, in our whole humanity. So we must press on. Uh, Spurgeon's two opening observations after setting that scene. That joy and peace are exceedingly desirable things, And we hope you'll never be satisfied until you get them and enjoy very much of them until you are filled with joy and peace. This is actually what we want for you. And then he says, I also want you to know that you should not overestimate joy and peace. They are eminently desirable, but not infallible evidences of safety. There are many persons, he says, who have great joy and much peace, but who are not saved, for their joy springs from a mistake, and their peace is the false peace, which does not rest upon the rock of divine truth, but upon the sand of their own imaginations. So on the one hand, he says, I don't want you to neglect this. It's a good and lovely thing to have. On the other hand, don't build upon this in the wrong way or put it in the proper, uh, the improper place. He reminds us that the brightest Christians can lose their joy and some of those that stand well in the things of God and concerning whom you would entertain no doubt entertain a great many suspicions, however, about themselves. Joy and peace are the element of a Christian, but he is sometimes out of his element. Joy and peace are the Christian's usual states, but there are times when joy departs and peace is broken. They may be very satisfactory evidences, but their absence during certain seasons can often be accounted for on some other hypothesis than that of there being no faith within. And so that's the the balance. Desire it and pursue it, but don't overestimate it. Don't seek joy and peace as the first and main thing. It's your spiritual security first, and then your spiritual delight. Be anxious to be happy, but more anxious to be holy. Desirous after peace, but more desirous still to get a good hope through Christ from which that peace may flow. So don't put the cart before the horse. Understand how these things hold together. And now he comes to the text. So all that's pastoral introduction. And you can see here, first of all, that Spurgeon knows his congregation and understands that this is a significant proportion of it, significant enough to address it. 
he also is is trying to make sure, even as he deals with this, that these sincere and sensitive and confused people may, because he's dealing with it, get the wrong end of the stick. And so he begins before he, he even gets into the meat of the sermon to make sure that he excludes some of the dangerous possibilities while establishing the right way. Now, his first observation then, with regard to the joy and peace in believing of which Romans 15 and verse 13 speaks, is this, that we need to correct two common and dangerous errors. Okay, so that's the first point. We need to correct two common and very dangerous errors. The text corrects the error of supposing that there is a way of joy and peace through self, and the text corrects another error which is to lead us to infer that there's such a thing as believing in joy and peace. Okay, so uh, let's let's deal with those in sequence, and hopefully then, especially that second one, uh, needs to make sense to us. So the text corrects first the error of supposing that there is a way of joy and peace through self. His basic point here, and it's a pretty straightforward one, is that if you're looking for joy and peace, you cannot look for it anywhere but in believing. And if you're looking to yourself and what you are and what you do, you never will obtain joy and peace. So some try and find joy and peace absolutely through good works, for example. But his conclusion is this. Do not try to get joy and peace by penitential feelings, by humbling yourself, by consecrating your life, or by any attempts of this kind. These things are good, preeminently good in themselves, if they are used lawfully. But to rest in them will be your ruin, and as to your present joy and peace, it can never be obtained by work or by anything from yourself. So, if you want joy and peace, you're going to have to look outside of yourself, your own efforts, your own labours, your own uh, engagements. It will not come by that way. And so many people who are desiring joy and peace never find it because they're looking entirely in the wrong place. They're looking for what they can produce rather than to to another. We'll come to that. And then he says, other people turn the text upside down. There is such a thing as joy and peace in believing, and some simpletons therefore infer that there is such a thing as believing in joy and peace. He says, I believe there is such a thing, but that's of the devil, and the sooner we're clear of it, the better. To get joy and peace through believing is one thing. It's God's plan of salvation. But to get your believing as the result of your joy and peace is quite another thing. And he explains what he means by that. That you don't basically say, I've got joy and peace, and therefore I believe. So he argues the point. To trust Christ because you just feel happy is, in the first place, irrational. A man may be thankful for that which he rightly possesses, but to make joy and peace the evidence of facts from without is supremely ridiculous. For a man to say, I know I am saved because I am happy, is most irrational, while to be happy because you are saved is right enough. So again, he's saying, don't build your confidence of salvation, your assurance of salvation upon your happiness. Or he says, take another view. 
suppose me to be in fear this morning about the health of some dear friend. Well, you say, I'd like to have my friend healthy, and I just want to feel myself safe about that friend. I don't know anything about his condition, and, and I'm uneasy. Uh, if you could, If I could get to feel easy, then I should be convinced that my friend was well. You understand his point. I've got a friend who's not well, and, and I'm not happy about it. But if I could just get happy, then I could be convinced that my friend was well. And you would say, there's no connection between the two things. Any more than someone should say, I should believe I was saved if I felt happy. Spurgeon says that's illogical and inconsistent and irreverent. You're saying to God, oh God, you tell me to trust Christ and I shall be saved. Well, I can trust not Christ, but my own feelings. And if I felt very happy, I could believe that he would save me. He said, that, that sounds a lot like blasphemy. They have the essence of blasphemy in them. And then a third concern, that to think in that way, that my believing needs to hang upon my joy and my peace, that's egotistical. You've got the divine promise. He who believes on him is not condemned. And instead of that, you say, no, I shall believe nothing which I do not feel. When I feel that I am saved, then I shall believe it. When I have joy and peace in the consequence of being saved, then I will trust Christ to save me. Now you're putting yourself and your own feelings, your own subjective experience before the objective truths of Christ crucified, his finished work and the offer of God's mercy in him to all who believe. So he says, don't fall into that trap. And you can see here how he's dealing very carefully, very faithfully with people who, with this sincere desire to know that they are true Christians, to have joy and peace in believing, who say that they lack joy and peace and therefore they are unsure. He says, don't imagine that that joy and peace come from within you and don't imagine that your joy and peace your present happiness is somehow the proof that you are believing. And then he comes on then to assert the positive, the great truth of the text, that believing in Christ is the true ground for joy and peace. What is believing in Christ? In one word, trust in Christ. He is sent, I know that's two words, but he means one phrase. He is sent of God to save sinners, and those sinners who trust in him to save them are saved. Faith then, the faith which is the ground of our joy and peace, is a simple trust in Christ. Now you see how Spurgeon is expounding his text, even as he explains it, that the joy and peace are in believing, that the believing does not hang upon joy and peace. And so he says this, this is the very essence of the gospel. And now to the very point, what then do I have to believe in order to have peace? What is this believing in Christ? Well, we, we trust the Christ of the Scriptures. We have trusted him because of the wonderful union of his natures. We're prepared to rely upon him because of his Godhead, which renders him omnipotent, equally glad to trust him because of his manhood, which makes him kind and considerate for our infirmities. So Spurgeon here zeroes in upon the person of Jesus Christ. And then we trust him again because of the evident truthfulness of his character. 
we find him in the record of the, the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that he is invariably the man of truth, that he always speaks what is right. He always avoids everything that is wrong. We have someone whose word then can be relied upon. But there's a third and perhaps the main reason that he tells us and God tells us that he was sent of God or by God on purpose to save. God sets forth Christ. He is the one who is sent of God, the true Messiah. Now, it seems to us, says the preacher, that if God sent Christ on purpose to save and Christ comes into the world and says, trust and I will save you, he has God to back him. And the everlasting honour of the eternal Trinity is pledged to every soul that comes to rest on Christ to be saved. So you must believe in Christ unless you want to make God a liar. If you're not prepared to trust him, then remember you do what John says, and I hope you shudder at the thought of doing it. He that does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the record that God gave of his son. So it's this very, really raw and basic truth. God has held out Christ and he's given a promise that whoever believes in him will be saved. And that's why we believe him. But there's more again. A fourth reason why we trust Christ. We conceive that the merit of his sufferings must be great enough to save us. He, he, he takes the, the congregation, as it were, by the hand and he leads them through Gethsemane and he takes them to, to Gabbatha. He takes them to the, the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. He takes them then to Calvary, to the the horrors of the cross and all its misery, miseries of body and of soul. And, and he says, I want you to see this. I want you to look to this suffering son, this atoning sacrifice and I want you to understand that here is all that you need. Here is the, the cleansing of his blood. Here is a clothing in his righteousness. If Christ died to save, then he is able to save. But he leads you beyond Calvary itself. A fifth reason, after our Lord had died and was buried, he was put into the tomb, but he could not be held there. So you look not just to the cross, although perhaps preeminently there. You remember that the Christ who died there also rose again, that there is an empty tomb. And now you trust yourself wholly and entirely to him who has risen again from the dead, who in testimony of his triumph over sin and death and hell has ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God. This is a Christ you can trust. And if you don't, he does not save you trusting him, then he is not as good as his word. And now I get joy and peace. Now, having put my faith in this Jesus, the true God-man, whose word is entirely reliable, who is set forth by God himself for the purpose of salvation, who lays down his life upon the cross in order that we might be saved, shedding his blood for our atonement, and who rises again from the dead on the third day, you trust him and you will get joy and peace. But if you wait for joy and peace and afterwards trust, you go the wrong way to work, you put the cart before the horse. You've begun to expect a harvest before you sow the wheat. The command is this, 
believe and live. And so, when you believe, you will obtain joy and peace. This text is of constant application, he says. Now, bear in mind those qualifications at the front end. He'll go back to those. I've told you that we do not always have joy and peace, but still, in the main, joy and peace are the result of believing, and they are results not sometimes, but in every case. So here is this very sensitive, very theologically and experimentally careful pastoral uh, dealing. Yes, we understand that there are variations here. Yes, we appreciate that there are heights and depths. Yes, we understand that there are different constitutions and personalities, but there is joy and peace in believing, and that is the normal way of things. For instance, he says, as soon as a person is saved, one of the earliest evidences of spiritual life is a great battle within. Some have the notion that as soon as they're saved, they shall never have to fight. Why, he says, it's then that you begin the campaign. Now, is it possible to be fighting with inbred sins and yet to have joy and peace? It's not just possible, he says, it's the only chance we have of victory. Because believing in Christ, we have joy and peace. Yes, we're fighting with our bad temper. We're fighting with many other imperfections. But if we haven't believed in Christ, then we have no joy and peace and we cannot conquer that evil spirit. We're distressed in mind and, and we're irritable and we're irritated. But if we simply believe in Christ and get joy and peace, then we can use that against our bad temper and we dismiss these little fretfulnesses. The point is that that we actually need the joy and peace that come through believing in order to go on with our Christian living in a happy and healthy way. He goes on, remember that even after you're secure in Christ and accepted before God and clothed in Jesus' righteousness, you may sometimes get despondent. So he says, don't build your confidence on your joy and peace. He says, Christian men are just men. They can have a bad liver or an attack of bile or some trial, and then they get depressed if they have ever so much grace. I am the subject of depressions, he says, depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him, and if he falls, I shall fall with him, but if he does not, I shall not. Where then does this joy and peace come from? Where is it recovered? It is not recovered by obsessing about our joy and peace. It is recovered by clearer views of Jesus Christ in whom we trust. Well, what if you fall into some great sin? All the more reason to cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. See, every time that there is this issue, whatever may be the particular challenge, Spurgeon's point is go back to Christ first. Don't first be worrying about your joy and your peace. First go to Christ and the true way to get joy and peace and to be kept from from sinning, to be forgiven for transgressions, to be kept from presumption is simply by believing. Now he finishes toward the end of his sermon with this very lovely declaration. Listen to what he says. It's, It's a little longer of a quote but I'll give it to you in full. 
that if you can get into such a state that all the sins that were ever committed should swear that they will block your pathway to peace, and if all the suggestions of hell that ever came up from the infernal pit should surround you at one time, and if, in his own proper person, the very prince of hell should stand across the way and swear to spill your soul's blood, and if, in addition to this, the light of God's countenance should be hidden from you and no promise should seem to come comfortably with power to your soul, and if, over and above this, every Christian minister should be silent or have no word for you but condemnation, and every Christian brother should turn his back on you and tell you that you were a hypocrite, a deceiver, a foul and lost villain, and if conscience should come in, conscience should come in at the back of these and say, "Every word of this is true, and you are all this." Yet, yet in that fearful extremity, if you can believe, you are saved. If you can then come, even in the most abject, filthy, leprous, horrible condition, so that the blackness of hell were whiteness compared to you, and the hardness of adamant were softness compared to your horrible and obdurate heart, yet if you can come and believe Christ is able to save to the uttermost, and if then you can fling yourself as a helpless lost one at the foot of his dear cross, and resolve to live or to die there, you shall never perish, neither shall any pluck you out of his hand, for he will save, he will rest in his love, and if you believe him, you can no more perish than he can perish. And unless he can be untrue and reverse his promise and cast his blood upon the ground to be spilt in vain, it is not possible that a soul trusting in Jesus should be lost. So you see what he's doing here. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful statement. He basically heaps up everything that could possibly militate against your joy and peace. He imagines every circumstance from, from the pit and, and in this world that might undermine, destroy, uh, overwhelm any possibility and prospect of your joy and your peace. And he says that if in the face of all that you are coming to and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, then in believing you have life and in believing in him and obtaining life, there is joy and peace for you to come. He's again insisting and pleading, do not put the cart before the horse. Do not put joy and peace in the place of believing. Don't put them before believing. Don't rest upon your joy and your peace. Rest upon Christ. And in resting upon him, you will obtain that joy and peace which are purchased for you by his death and assured for you by his resurrection. A word before we part, he says, as so often, to those who know neither joy nor peace through faith in Jesus and who have no wish to share these blessings because they are satisfied with the delusions of the God of this world. He says, weigh up your joy with ours. Put your peace into the scale against ours. Is your joy pure? Is your cup without dregs and your delight without bitterness? Is your peace as, as clean and sweet as ours? As sure and as happy? If you truly understand the joys and the peace that this world seems to offer and you compare them 
with the true joy and peace that come through believing, then you will quickly learn to despise your present state and you will seek that true joy, that real peace, those solid joys and lasting treasures, to use the language of the hymn, which are the the inheritance of the true children of Zion, that is, those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That then is Spurgeon's plea. There is joy and peace for those who believe. Don't put them in the wrong proportion. Don't put them in the wrong connection. Don't put the wrong one before the others. Understand that there are errors to be made in this way, that there is joy and peace apart from believing and that somehow joy and peace must come before believing. No, he says, it is Christ, this Jesus, who is the true ground for joy and for peace, the Christ of the scriptures, and that joy and peace come through believing. And no matter how how vile, how hard, how difficult, how dark your circumstances may be, that if you would have joy and peace, the way to obtain them is to come to God through Jesus Christ. Perhaps we're pastors and preachers, and we need to show some of this sensitivity and positivity, that is, to hold out Christ in this way to those who are troubled, to deal wisely with those who are in these different categories and classes of spiritual condition. Perhaps you're a Christian who has joy and peace, or who longs for joy and peace, or who's lost joy and peace. What do you do? Where do you go? You turn back to Christ and him crucified. I trust that that will be a blessing to us, whether or not we need it for ourselves, or if we're able to pass those things on to others. Next week, God willing, we'll be reading our our next set of sermons. It's 696 through to 702, and our featured sermon is number 697, God's Cure for Man's Weakness. So please do read that ahead of time if you're able to, or if not, join us anyway. Thank you for listening. Uh, we trust that you will uh, come to come to hear us again, and indeed that you might be able to look to some other podcasts from Media Gratii. Uh, there are resources uh, like this, including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours that you can find, together with other podcasts at mediagratii.org. But until you back with us again, God willing, in a few days' time. I hope that the Lord will bless you and that we will all obtain joy and peace in believing in Jesus Christ.